Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Hello and welcome to Fire in the Belly. Today we have myself, Mighty Pete, and we're joined by the Andy Bounds. Good afternoon, Andy. Good afternoon, Pete. Awesome. Listen, thank you so much for coming on. Been looking forward to this. So, Andy, give us a bit of bit of a background. Who are you? What are you doing? Where are you from? So, um, I help my customers to sell more and communicate better. Um, uh, I've won awards. I've written books. The thing people are most interested in, Pete, is my family background. My mum is blind, um, so the person who taught me to speak can't see. So, I became naturally interested and good at, I hope, explaining things to people who don't see the world the way I do. So, it's pretty important with sales and communication. Uh, I'm based in Liverpool in the north of England, uh, and the lockdown, which has been um, not particularly pleasant for so many people. Uh, I have actually, you know, talk about fire in your belly. I felt real fire in my belly throughout the whole lockdown because communication and sales is hard enough anyway. Well, it really is if you can't get to meet with people. Um, and so I'm delighted to be here and to answer any questions that you might have. Super. Well, it's great. And, and it's funny you talk about, I suppose, with COVID that we are getting, you know, some of our senses are being diminished through being able to meet people face to face, etc. You know, so some senses are down. So it means we have to heighten all the senses, right? Does, it, does that make sense? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and things that you should have been doing anyway, you sort of can get away with face to face. If you've got a bit of something about you, a bit of gift of the gab, if you're having a chat with someone in Starbucks, then the conversation might flow. It's not stilted. Maybe you could even wing it and not do any prep. Now, of course, you've totally found out if you do that. So one thing I'm always saying to people is when you're going into a virtual conversation, um, as you say, the other senses are, he are heightened. So don't just prepare what you're going to talk about. Also prepare good questions to ask to make sure that the other person contributes because there is nothing more frustrating than being on the receiving end of a 20-minute rant on Zoom, you know, where you haven't had any opportunity to contribute at all. So things that you might have been able to get away with once, you can't now. So you've really got to raise your game. No, so, so true. And and I, I don't know. I mean, a lot of people, it feels like they've almost been backed into the Zoom world, whether they wanted it or not, you know, and it, it has come on us pretty quickly, right? You know, it's not, mm. you know, Zoom was there, but it certainly wasn't a, a fraction of what it is today. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And even though it was there, um, people always had choice. So um, whereas now they don't. So one of my customers based in America wanted me to fly out to America to do a face to face team event. And I said, well, I don't think that's going to work, really, because even if my country will let me leave, your country might not let me in. And that's assuming the flights are going anyway. And then I might not get out and I might not get home. So why don't we just do it by Zoom? And they said, yeah, fair enough. Now, I could have said that same thing a year ago and they would have said, no, we wanted to come over to see us. Whereas now other people don't have choice, which means you have no choice. You've got to raise your game virtually. Mm, absolutely well it makes a lot of sense and it's as you as you know there is an opportunity here right because suddenly we have a level playing field where it's not about the price of the airplane ticket and the time away etc cetera, etc cetera, whereas potentially we we can be global with the touch of a button right yeah and yes of course there are certain things which 
we all miss. And um, but I also miss Father Christmas. You know, I used to love him and I used to think he was real. I think he still is real, Pete. If you aren't aware of this, it's all good. Um, but like all of a sudden, when I was seven, eight, nine years old, it wasn't the same anymore. Um, I used to really like face to face, but it's just not the same anymore. It doesn't mean it won't come back. But for now, we just have to um, do our absolute best to contribute to the other person, to help them, to impress them, uh, to inspire them and to help them do what they want to do. And, of course, great communication gets us there. Well, talk to us about that. What, what is communication and what makes it great? Okay, communication, there's various ways to look at it. My favorite way is the way you judge how communication has worked is what happens after it. So, for example, if you do what you think is a wonderful email and it's thorough and it's robust and no details are missed out at all, and the person who receives it has a look at it quickly, sees it's quite long, can't be bothered reading it and doesn't reply to it. Your email might have been glorious, but what happened after it was not what you wanted. Um, you might do this wonderful presentation thing and it's going to change the way the world thinks. And if somebody listens to it and they're excited by it, but they go back to the desk and they forget all about it, again, it hasn't worked. So communication is all about whether it works or not. So one of the first things is to think, what does working mean with this? You know, so if you're, I don't know, if you, oh, silly little example, if you're sending an email to someone, the first thing you think is not, what am I going to say in this email? The first thing you think is, what do I want the reader to do when they've read this? Because if I know I want the reader to, I don't know, send me some dates over for our workshop, you're going to have the email which says, please send me the dates over for the workshop. And once you've written that, the rest of the email is based around that. Now, I know this sounds really obvious, but nobody does it. So what people do is they send a big ranty email about the workshop and about how useful it's going to be and how life-changing it's going to be. And there's nowhere in there that says, this is the outcome I want. So when you talk about what makes communication good or bad, it's if it works or not. Okay. I mean, are we, are we being over-communicated at the moment? I mean, in terms of that sort of speedo dial, where are we at on the communication front? Well, it depends, but... Um, there's a lot of people who quite understandably are a bit rattled with what's going on at the minute. And when you're rattled, you can panic a bit. And when you panic a bit, you behave in a way which is different than you normally would. There are also some people who are struggling to get money coming in or get a job or, or whatever it might be. So understandably, people are a touch more desperate, which means maybe they're communicating more than they used to and maybe using more desperate language, if you like. So certainly what I've seen, I'm getting, I'm probably getting twice as many communications coming into me as I ever have done. But most of those extra ones are a bit of white noise, really. It's just people sort of spraying communication around and hoping they happen to hit somebody. It's not particularly targeted or relevant or, dare I say, interesting. So yeah, there's too much of it at the minute, I would suggest. So, I mean, give us, give us the overview in terms of communication. And, and so we've, you know, you've got all the, I mean, suppose post, I don't know if anyone still sends letters these days, you know, but your post, your emails, your phone calls, your voicemails, your WhatsApp, your, your sort of all your social media messages. I mean, when you say communication, is it those forms? Yeah, all of them. Yeah, all of them. So the thing that matters more than anything else, whenever you communicate is your audience. I mean, that's the thing I learned from my mom at the earliest age. I could explain something what I thought was really well, but if she didn't understand it, it meant the blind person was missing out. Mm -hmm. And I remember someone explaining something to my mom. I must have been seven or eight, Pete. And this guy was trying to explain it to mom. Um, and she didn't quite get it. And this guy was a bit embarrassed about it. And he showed his embarrassment by being a bit almost cross with my mom and a bit abrupt with her. And so as a seven, eight-year-old boy, I was a bit defensive about my mom. And, 
And she was a bit embarrassed as well because she knew this guy was trying to be nice. And I remember thinking, because obviously I knew how to communicate with mum because I was used to talking to a blind person. I remember thinking about this guy, oh, if you just had said it this way, both you and my mum would have been happy. And that is very much what adult communication is like now. Oh, if you just had said things that way, both you and them would have been okay. So whether it's text or WhatsApp or email or whatever, you've got to say it in a way the other person will like. So use the channel they'll like, use messaging they'll like, be empathetic, be nice, and all that sort of stuff. And if you just say things a certain way, both you and they are happy. It's important that it's not just for them because you might miss out. And it can't just be what you think because they might be bored. You've both got to be happy. And if you are, both good things should happen. And out of interest, I mean, communication to, say, your mother, you know, a blind person, should that be the same to any person? I mean, should should communication all be at that standard in your view? Well, the other person is often blind to the world from your point of view. So it's like the salesperson that goes in, they're trying to impress the customer, and maybe they start off with some slide that says, our company was founded in 1922, and here's a map of all our offices. And from the salesperson's side, they think they're being, look how big we are, look how safe we are, look how robust we are, the world is changing out there, but we've been around for a long time. But on the receiving end of it, the customer thinks, why are you telling me how old you are? Why are you telling me where all your offices are in the world? I'm just based in Liverpool. Why are you even telling me this? And so what's happening here is they're not showing enough empathy. They're doing what they did last week instead of what, what, what the other person wants. So the thing to look for all the time is how can you frame what you want to say in a way that the other person really loves? And when you talk about fire in your belly, that's my fire in my belly. It's just I'm just like the seven-year-old boy who thought, oh, if you just had said that, both me and both you and my mum would have been happy. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, just while you're on it, I suppose, what, what does fire in the valley mean to you then? Is it that communication that method? That's it's that all that. It's making sure communication works for everyone. So um, I passionately hate almost to the point of violence, really selfish communication. You know, so sometimes, I don't know, like, there'll be a team update in corporate land and the boss will send out a massive PowerPoint five minutes before the meeting starts and says, have a read of this for the pre-work. And then they'll kick off when someone hasn't read it. And then there'll be an hour-long update meeting, most of which is boring, and most of which is the boss just talking through the slides that they've just sent. I just hate that. So I've got, I've got this real fire in the belly just for fixing it. I mean, what it, what it comes from, Pitman, I mentioned about mum and so on, but I remember going to a presentation by a bank about 20 years ago. So I used to be an accountant like many, many years ago. And so I went to this finance update thing by this bank. I was about halfway through, and I was thinking – why is this so boring? You know, you, you paid a lot of money to hire this room. You paid a lot of money to get us all here. And why haven't you paid a lot of money to make your communication good? I, I didn't understand it. And I thought maybe it was just them. And then literally two or three days later, I went to another presentation, coincidentally in the same room that another bank had hired. Um, and it was equally bad. And that's where my fire and belly came from, Pete, because I sat there thinking, oh, my word, most people don't know how to be interesting. Um, most people are wasting all this time and all this money that if they just knew how to flip a switch, both them and my mum will be happy. So that's the fire in the belly. It's not a question of trying to manipulate my mum. It's not a question of my mum winning out. The question is, how can we say things that both of my fire comes from? What's, 
what makes you happy? I mean, what's what's your communication? Because you talked about other people and you talked about your mother. I mean, what's what's your sort of passion or fire in the belly then? Well, well, certainly that is one thing. As far as my job goes, that that is it. Um, and I suppose it's very similar outside work as well. I'm very blessed. I've got four children. I tend to like most of them at one point in time, but you never know when you've got children. A bit overrated children sometimes. Yeah. Um, so I've got like a beautiful wife, Emma. I've got um, four beautiful children. I've got lots of lovely friends. And I suppose, although I don't like to take work outside work, I suppose my values for work sort of map across into my life. Like, so when I'm talking to the kids, I like, I want us all to be happy and to, uh, and to express ourselves and so on. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, recently I thought I was, um, so you can tell I'm quite enthusiastic and bubbly. So I was, I thought I was being all positive impacts and I was saying, right kids, I thought what we can do today, like maybe we could do this and it'd be really good. And all the kids were like, Oh dad, that's amazing. And then I suddenly thought afterwards, I thought quite often I'm the one who's the enthusiastic. What about this? What about this? And it suddenly dawned on me, you know, every strength is a weakness. And I thought my fire is not everyone follow me. My fire is everyone express themselves. And I realized that my, by me being quite um, enthusiastic and positive, in a weird way, I might also almost be stifling the children, suggesting what to do. So then the next time we had a similar conversation today, because I can't think of anything, come up with something. So it was the same excitement, but now I was excitedly asking them a question rather than me excitedly saying something. And I thought, that's the fire in my belly. I want everyone to be contributing. I want everyone to be happy. One of my kids suggested something which was miles better than what I would have thought of. So actually, we ended up with a better outcome anyway. Um, so the fire in the belly, it's whether I'm at home or whether I'm at work, I just want communication to work and for it to benefit everyone. That's so interesting. So I mean, it, in terms of it's 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 enthusiasm for the vehicle or, or the process as opposed to actually the the actual the content that you're trying to get across right yeah it's all to do with the outcomes i mean when i work with salespeople, i say um the word i want you to remember if you want to sell more stuff and you know a, a quick tangent here i work at quite a high level so i got voted great britain sales trainer of the year i've written books on this one of my books was kept off amazon number one spot by the final harry potter book i've worked in 40 countries you know i've done some significant sales stuff and the most important word with sales always is the word afters. And what I mean by that, Pete, is why the customer is better off afterwards. So if you're selling things and you say, I'm a market leading lawyer, the customer might say, I'm sure you are. But if you say, after working with me, you won't be going to jail. Well, now the customer is really interested. And it's like the accountant who says, I'm very good at preparing tax returns. And you go, I'm sure you are. Well, I'll tell you what, after working with me, uh, you have to pay as much tax. So people never want the thing we are. They want the afters of us. So it's a bit like someone listening to what we're talking about here. I mean, hopefully, I, I really hope you're enjoying it. I'm enjoying it. I hope everyone listening enjoys it. But really, the ultimate success with this is what happens afterwards. So I just really hope that when people hear this, they get inspired. Maybe the next time they're talking with the kids or the customers or a colleague or something, they just really bust a gut to make sure the other person enjoys the communication. That would be me causing afters. And I, and I love that. Um, so, yeah, I like the way you described it there. If you think in terms of afters all the way through, you tend to think what's better afterwards for us and them and your communication gets you there. Mm -hmm. uh, going on then, I suppose, in terms of sitting in the, the receiving seat, if you like, I mean, what's, what do you see as the difference between listening and hearing then? So if, if you're taking on whatever's coming at you, mm -hmm. what listening, hearing, how do you, how do you split them up? 
Well, there's, I mean, you get a lot of people talk about um, listening and hearing. I mean, the idea is listening, it means it goes in. Hearing, you can hear the radio, but not listen to it sort of thing. So mm-hmm. listening, the difference in my little childish definition is listening is it's gone in your head and hearing is it might not have done. Um, but when people talk about active listening, it's a bit like listening to what. So like I said before, whenever you're preparing communications um, verbally, one of the most important things you can do, particularly in lockdown world, is to, to prepare really good questions. Because if you prepare really good questions, they will give you really good answers. And that gives you something to listen to. So if I just said to you, Pete, next conversation, go and listen, you'll probably say, well, I've already thought of that, Andy. But if I say, Pete, you know you're supposed to listen. The best thing is if you've got something really good to listen to. So let's come up with a couple of great questions that you can ask. Because then if you ask great questions, their answers are really worth listening to. So an example, one of my customers who works in insurance, so already it could be perceived a little boring by some people they're speaking to, uh, they were doing a sales presentation um, and they had on this sales presentation, they had um, a slide that said, um, uh, or what did it say? Four benefits of working with us or something. So I said, what questions are you going to ask? And they just looked at me and said, what do you mean? I said, well, let's think of some really good questions because if you say, look at our four benefits, they'll go, I'm looking and there's nothing to listen to. There's nothing to hear. So you've got to ask questions to have something to listen to. So we came up with lots of questions for them and I coached them how to answer, ask them and so on. And so when they did their sales presentation, this slide came up and they said, you know, before we carry on, can we just ask what do you think about these four, four, um, four things we've written on the slide? Now, that I would think is quite a good question. And the customer said, oh, we quite like them. And then they did the follow-up question, and which do you think is most powerful? And the customer said, well, probably number three. And they said, oh, could you help me understand? Why would you say number three? Oh, because of this. So is this something you think your firm would benefit from then? So what impact might that have on your colleagues then? So is that the sort of thing you were hoping for when we met today? Or have you got any concerns? Now, all these things I'm saying are really good questions, Pete, because it means the other person has got some really good answers for you, which gives you something to listen to. So whenever people talk about hearing and listening, I say, yeah, there's a very important difference. And I love the question you asked. But the way to make sure you've got something to listen to is you have to ask good questions or there might be silence. And that's I mean, that's quite common, isn't it, where you either get silence or, you know, you get, I suppose, asking the question, maybe not even listening to the answer back, you know, and you're too busy. You know, it's, it's common human nature, right? Or well, sorry, it's maybe not common, but people are sort of processing to the next thing or waiting to respond and going, Andy, as soon as you stop talking, I'm going to jump <laughs> yeah. jump in with this as opposed to active listening then. Yeah, I heard a really good comment about that. Sometimes people think they're having a conversation, but actually they're just waiting for their turn to speak. And I thought that's a really good way to put it. We've seen things like that. You know, I might say to you, oh, Pete had a nightmare today at work. And you go, yeah, I did. We actually had a fire. And I go, yeah, I had a fire once, but I was all right in the end. And you go, yeah, I was all right. But And so actually, it sounds like we're having a conversation, but we're not. I said I had a bad day at work. And then you said, yeah, so did I. I had a fire. And then I said, oh, I had a fire once. I mean, if I was really listening to you, I'd say, you had a fire? What happened? Are you all right? Um, and so when we talk about active listening, little prompting questions like, oh, what happened? Or tell me more. I remember telling my mum and dad about the importance of the question, tell me more. And I was saying that, you know, a lot of research suggests that, depending which book you read, um, that men sometimes go for solutions and women sometimes don't want the man to go for solutions, according to this book. All right. So I'm not like, and I was telling mom and dad this. And I said, what do you think about this? 
And dad said, I'm not sure about that. And mum said, that's typical. He's not listening to you even now. And I went, oh, you know, you, you sowed marital discord here. Um, and so I was saying that, um, you know, a really good question to ask is always tell me more. And mum and dad were saying that, you know, if, if mum ever says oh, I had a, a bad day at work today, dad will often offer a solution. And sometimes she just wants to talk about it. And my dad's saying, why do you want to talk about it? I'm giving you a solution. And she goes, I just want to talk about it. What is there to talk about about the solution? And so I said to dad, you've just got to say, tell me more, dad. That's all you have to say. So mum, sure enough, two or three days later, dad went to pick her up from this charity board she's on and made the monumental mistake of saying, how was your meeting? And she said, oh, it was a nightmare. And dad followed his training and said, oh, tell me more. And then mum just spoke for quite a bit. Uh, the mistake dad made was when mum finished talking, she said, so what do you think about that? And dad said, while you've been talking, I've driven for 34 miles. <laughs> so we needed to call him back in and said, dad, you can't just say, tell me more. And then not listen when she tells you more. Um, so you're so right. You've got to ask good questions. You have to listen to what they say. You have to respond to what they say. And second questions like, tell me more, or why'd you say that? Or could you help me understand what you mean? That's what really good conversationalists do. Mm. And when you do that, you do find out more stuff and it's just a richer conversation and experience for everyone. Uh, I mean, I, just as you're speaking there, I'm sort of thinking, you know, do people actually say what they mean and mean what they say? Is it, communication-wise, is that connected to? Because I'm just thinking mm. of your father there driving all that time and going, I'm, listen, I'm, I'm a great listener. I'm ticking all my boxes, <laughs> you know, and just... <laughs> The final execution was a bit touch and go, you know? Yeah, that's right. That's Yeah, so um, it, learning's a journey, right? And he wasn't yeah. quite there that day. And also, I, I said to him, when did you start clocking the speedometer, Dad? You know, because like, <laughs> I hope you started listening. Um, so, yeah, so, um, so it's an interesting point, that, because, you know, we want to be authentic with things like this. So, hmm. you know, I mean, one of the things I had to say to Dad, if you're not going to tell, if you're not going to listen when you say, tell me more, you're probably better off just not saying, tell me more. Yeah. Um, and so it's, but the interesting thing is, you know, we, we behave uh, in a way that we think is appropriate. And sometimes we behave in a way that isn't always authentic to ourselves. You know, so someone listening to this might think, oh, I really ought to say the question, tell me more. That's very good. He's very wise, Andy Bowles. I'm going to say, tell me more forever. But if it doesn't sound like you, it won't sound like you when you say it. So the, the thing always is, this advice is fine, but you do have to weigh, find a way that suits you and fits in with your personality and the personality of the people you're speaking with. Mm. That's it, because, um, you know, I'm just trying to think, I suppose, as people say, you know, whether it's if you are of the line of thought that women sort of maybe want to talk about their feelings and, and what's attached to it, as opposed to men are solution mode, sort of, I need a hard answer. <laughs> You know, it's, it is different, right? You ask, a, well, do you ask a different question, I suppose? Not to... Well, of course. I mean, it's just a question of knowing the other person. I mean, I remember mm. talking, sorry, it sounds like I'm just talking about my mum all the time here, but I'll do one more and then I'll never talk about it again, Pete. <laughs> so I remember speaking, I mean, I've taught networking all over the world. Like one of my clients is the world's biggest networking organization. I know a lot about networking, written books on it even, but my mum's one of these people who's better at networking than I am and I teach this stuff. And I said to her, how come you're so good at this? How come you're able to just know what everyone's doing and stuff? And she said, quite easy, really. Um, I just find out what the other person's interested in, and then I talk about that. And I thought, that's not a bad rule, actually. You know, find out what they're interested in and talk about that. Um, and it's a bit, you know, if I'm uh, – so the other day someone gave me a uh, – recommended me to one of their other 
other contacts for a piece of business than what corporate people call a referral. So I was really grateful for this. And because I know the person who'd recommended me really well, and I know that they, uh, they're really strong family values, absolutely loves his kids to bits and all this sort of stuff. And I know how old his kids are. My wife used to own a toy shop, so I know quite a lot about toys and so on. So all I did is I sneakily found out his address and just sent over two boxes of Lego. And I just said, thanks so much for that introduction. That's really nice of you. Um, please give this Lego to your kids as a thank you. And if you don't want to give it the kids, just do it when they're in bed. Thanks very much. And I thought afterwards, that is what I mean by nice communication, because I could have not done anything. I could have just sent a book token or something. But I happen to know what this guy is interested in. So I know what he's interested in. So we talk about that. And I think that's such a key point, isn't it? You know, we all, I think that's so clever that you've not only have you communicated, you've also listened, taken on board. I mean, is there a memory test in there? Because as well, you know, how do you, how do you keep track of that? Or, you know, your memory pegging or how? Yeah, because your question's really good. Um, So the way that, the way I do this is my memory is no better or worse than anyone else's. It's probably worse than most people's. But the main difference with memory is, I think there are certain things that are really important. And so it's a bit like if you thought it was really important to, so, so for example, we've recently got a new puppy. So it's really important for our family that we don't run out of poo bags. So it's not particularly exciting um, and it's not particularly something to everyone. But even my eight-year-old is saying, Dad, we're running out of poo bags because it's just, because we know it's important, even though it's utterly boring, it's just important now. And what you just said then, there are certain things that once you realize they're important, it's quite easy to remember them all the time. I think it's really important to find a connection with the other person. So um, someone I know uh, quite well, not very well, she had a terrible personal situation um, about four or five years ago that her partner just dropped dead totally unexpectedly. Um, and so when I, I was talking to her about six months ago and she told me that she'd started dating again. Um, but she felt a bit uncomfortable. Should she do that? Had she left long enough? Was it appropriate? Was she and all that sort of stuff? And so we're just down a bit of a chat about it. Um, and so when I spoke to her recently, um, I just had a quick chat and said, oh, last time I spoke to you, you said you were dating. Um, how's that going for you? And that's what I mean, because this stuff's important. I don't need to ask very insightful questions. I just need to let her know I've remembered what's important to her. You know, I didn't say, where have you been on your dates? Right. <laughs> What do you talk about of an evening? She just, I think it's lovely for the other person, whoever it is, to know they're being thought about. Mm. Yep. So if you think this sort of thing's important, I mean, I have seen some people whose memories even worse than mine, I think. What they do is they have a little two-column table. They get, they get a table. Say they've got 10 important contacts. Left-hand column, they list the name of their 10 important contacts. And right-hand column, they list their contacts' number one priority like family, Lego, dating, football, whatever it is. And almost every single time they speak to them and say, oh, while I'm on, did you watch the game at the weekend? And in some ways, it's almost a bit, if you if you watch them do it, you could almost think it's contrived, but the other person doesn't know that's happening. The other person just knows that, oh, he's dead nice, Andy. Every time he rings, he's always asking about me team. He's always asking about me kids. So if you need a two-column table, rock one up. Um, if you think you'll remember anyway, just try and remember anyway. But remember, other people love it when you remember what's important to them. Mm. So do whatever mechanism you need so you can help facilitate that. Mm. I'm, the problem is now I'm not going to forget you for poo bags. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the other thought. Isn't he the bald guy with a blind mum? I, th- I can't remember something about poo or something. <laughs> it's like, 
Yeah, we can't. Yeah, I might have used a different story if I thought that through, actually. No, it's cool. <laughs> I love it there. Talk to us about money, Andy. About money? Mini. Small. Small oh, Andy. Small Andy. Um, so, small Andy, um, he had a bit more hair than me. Um, uh, but when he was 18, it fell out. Uh, so, let me just think. Mini Andy. Um, Mindy, I was quite a happy little soul, really. Um, I was not in any way what you'd call cool. I mean, it doesn't help. Like, what do you want to be when you're, when you're a kid? You want to be good at football. And so going blind in the left eye like I did wasn't very good because I couldn't judge 3, 3D anymore. So sometimes I'd do this brilliant diving swan header and then the ball would come past about five seconds later. Um, so when you're young, you want to be good at football. And I wasn't. I was okay at football until I lost my sight in one eye. Um, when I was 17, what do you want to be able to do? You want to be able to drive around and everything. And I couldn't do that because I couldn't see far enough to drive. So I had my challenges to overcome, like everyone has their challenges to overcome. Mine are no worse than anybody else's. In fact, probably better than most people's. But it wasn't particularly easy, those things. Um, but overall, I was pretty happy, pretty well adjusted um, and uh, and not cool. So um, I had a period of about six months wishing I was cool. Um, but for the other 17 and a half of my 18 years, I was really not bothered about that sort of thing at all. Um, went to university. Um, I did quite a lot of um, amateur dramatics. So I could sing a bit, not very well, but enough that I got a couple of leads in a couple of part, in a couple of plays and, and stuff. So, I mean, I quite like doing that. I was in a couple of bands and um, I've just always been quite, um, I, I get bored very easily. Um, and so I'm always looking for things to do. So even as a child, I was thinking, why does that work? Why does that do that? Why does that do that? So probably quite irritating, I would imagine, as a child. Mm. What was your go-to on the singing then? Um, well, it was just that when I was at, um, I mean, uh, mum and dad are both very musical. Um, mm. you know, uh, dad used to play the organ in church and, you know, he always used to say mum was better at the piano than he was and, you know, and all that sort of stuff. So, so they were they were both very musical, and I just picked up some of that. I think um, it was quite funny because the parts I used to have were like the because I could sing very high. Um, so, for, so if there was a high tenor part, I would often get the you know the high tenor part, and often in the musicals I was in, that often would be the romantic lead part. So I often got these romantic lead parts just because I could sing high, not because I was very good. Um, so I used to think that was quite cool. I used to sort of quite enjoy that. Um, and, uh, and I had a couple of lessons, but, but not really. Um, uh, and so, yeah, so music was really good. I used to like doing things like that. So I used to like doing music and I used to like watching sport. That makes a lot of sense. It's, yeah. And I mean, school, were you running into school, running out of school? Um, yeah, a bit of both actually. Um, uh, yeah, I quite, I quite enjoyed school. I, I had two secondary schools. Um, the first one I really liked, and the second one I liked less, um, just because like sometimes you, um, it's just not quite you. And I remember thinking when I look back at it, the first school was quite like me, and the second one wasn't quite like me. Um, so I think I was running into the first one, and maybe a bit more hesitant about the second one. But I was absolutely fine. You know, it's interesting now when I see child three as we now call we don't give our kids names pete we just call them numbers so child three she's 11 so she's just going to big school now and it's really nice just to see like when i walk into the corner and then she goes off like she's always skipping to school to go see your dad and she's off skipping i think i don't remember doing that um so like uh, so i used to quite enjoy it but not as much as that, i think yeah skipping in's a bit generously you know it's like 
That's yeah, slightly overrated. I'd, I'd give that a week, I think. She'll soon grow out of it. <laughs> it's not very manly either, you know, if, if you were to be skipping in. Yeah, it's not going to work in my old boys' school I went to. <laughs> it's like, oh, there's skipping Andy again. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I mean, I was interested before, I mean, because a couple of times you talked about your mother and, and you mentioned being sort of seven years of age and your voice elevated slightly. Is there is there a connection there? Was that a communication thing, do you think? Um, I don't know if it is. I think I, you saw me have a drink. I think I might just have had a shot of strong coffee before I said it. I think it's more that than anything else. Um, yeah, so I mean, in terms of then, you know, I suppose it's always understanding communication through all that. And and I mean, were, were you consciously aware? Was you, has your mother been blind from, from birth for you? Um, she, so she went blind when she was eight. We, we have a thing called Stickler syndrome. So um, one of the... Uh, symptoms that can happen is your retinas can detach between the age of about five and ten so um i was so i always think i'm really lucky that i can see it all so my one good eye uh, my prescription that's minus 14 and to put that in context for people listening anything worse than minus 10 is pretty rarely bad so mine's minus 14 so it's really p- pathetically bad and that's my good eye um so so that's so what happens is with stickler syndrome, if the retina goes, it's often between the age of five and 10. So so I was lucky that one of mine went and the other one didn't, whereas both the mums did. Um, three of our four kids have, have got sticklers, so they now can do preventative surgery. It's like the wonders of modern medicine, you know? So two gen- or three generations ago, she lost a sight. One gen- two generations was me. Um, I sort of nearly did. And now the kids should be, should, should, should be fine. Mm. Um, I, I think it's... I mean, it's interesting. It has a big impact on me, but say my dad, um, he used to work in local government. He was chief executive of Liverpool City Council. He became chief executive of his first place. He was like a really young age, like late 30s and so on. Like a very successful man, um, like quite brilliant in his own way. And so I just used to find them really inspiring. You know, that just uh, when you talk about where does this fire come from, like very often I'll ring them, um, and I'll speak to them at the weekend and I'll find they're both doing something which a lot of people would think was quite nerdy. Um, and, you know, like dad was reading some latest report about the local church council in his area or something. And I said to him, is that interesting, dad, to you? And he said, well, quite. He said, but also I think it's important to keep your brain active. You know, so I like looking at different things and, you know, and, and I'm like that. So, so for example, when this all this lockdown stuff happened. Like you, um, when it first happened, a lot of people were saying it was a really good idea. So the first thing I did is I did a bit of searching around to find somebody eloquent who thought it wasn't a good idea just to make sure I could see both sides of the argument. Mm. Yeah, And it wasn't that I agreed or disagreed, but I always want to hear the other side. Remember one of our business coaches, the very first one, a brilliant man called Humphrey Claxton. He was um, talking with Emma, my wife, um, and Emma said, oh, we've got a really good PA for, for Andy. And um, Humphrey said, okay, so what is unimpressive about her? And Emma said, no, I just said she's really good, this PA. And he goes, no, I'm asking what's unimpressive about her. You have to be able to see both sides of everything. Um, and I thought that was a really good life lesson, actually. Mm. Um, so so I think that maybe the the natural thing I get from mum and dad is obviously part of it, but I just always think you should be able to see both sides of things. So like, it's, it's great to read up stuff on this lockdown. Should we do it? Should we not read out what other countries are doing? Like New Zealand, it's worked pretty well there. So read out what they're doing. And I just am passionately, nerdily, geekily interested 
in other people's views on the same thing. Um, and I guess I get that from both mum and dad. Makes sense. I mean, is that, uh, I mean, well, how do you sift through that then to make sure you're getting fact and you don't sort of pick up opinion? Fake and... news. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, it's just a question of reading and so on and then taking your own, you're taking your own views on these things. Um, mm. There's a... Um, I heard once, I don't know if it's true, there's an old Chinese proverb, you know, it's a famous thing. If you say old Chinese proverb, you can rock out any sentence afterwards going, there's an old Chinese proverb that says there is no universal truth, there's just perspective. Mm. Um, and whether that's right or not, or whether it is a Chinese proverb or not, I think it should be one. Um, uh, and I once heard someone much cleverer than me describe uh, life a bit like a beach ball. So if you imagine a beach ball floating between us with um, six different colours on it, from your side of the beach ball, you can only see three colours. You think the beach ball is red, white, and blue. Um, I think it's yellow, green, and orange because that's the three things I can see. It's the same beach ball, just depends where you're looking at it from. Yeah, well, replace the word beach ball with email, mm. conversation, sales pitch, chat with your kids, and all that sort of stuff. And life is basically one big beach ball. Should we do a lockdown or not? Depends where you're looking at it from. And so it's a good idea just to see what other people think, and then you can take your own judgment on it. I'm kind of tired, you know, as you speak there, it, it's, you know, I suppose the question for me that keeps running back is going, you know, can can a disability be create a super ability? You know, and I suppose as you say that, you know, when, you know, you take away one sense, you get a heightened other sense, but on that then you can potentially understand all the additional nuances. As opposed, someone might go, well, you know, they, they can offset the nuance because they, they trigger another sense or whatever. They don't, they don't just overlook the, 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 the details, right? Mm. Does that make any sense? It does. So, yeah, it's a great way to put it. And um, I mean, I'd love to call it a superpower because that would make me sound cool. Um, I'm Go not quite sure. Oh, all right. So it's my superpower. Um, so I think certainly one thing it's given me is um, an obsession with the other person, whoever you're speaking to, doesn't see the world the way you do. Hmm. So, and you're going to have to make allowances to make sure you can help them do that. And it's really interesting. So, I mean, like, take the example. So, I mean, this is going to date our recording here, but when we think about what's going on in the American election right now, so Trump is behaving in a way that many people might not. But once you know what Trump's like and how he defines life, his behavior makes total sense given what he's like from his side of the beach ball. From my side of the beach ball, I wouldn't behave that way because I'm not him. Yeah. Um, but of course, it's so easy for people to say um, he's right. The whole thing's been a fraud or for people to go, he's wrong. It's typical of him. He's an idiot. Um, but there's no universal truth. Yeah. There's just there's just perspective. Mm. Certainly um, one of the most emotional moving things that's ever happened to me is in, with my first book. Um, I was, and this does answer your question, you might think, why is it talking about this book? Um, I dictated, so I dictated a chapter and um, then I sent the file over to mum and mum was, because mum's touch typist, so she was listening to this and I said to her, do you mind if I talk about you in the book? And she said, yeah, that's fine, I don't care, do what you like. Um, and then when she was typing, I always get a bit emotional with this, so I'll try and get through this. So when she was typing, she heard in her ears about how me talking about um my relationship with her being so important and why I was passionately interested in communication. And she said as she was typing, she felt very moved because um, like I'm used to having my poor sight. She's used to having her blindness. Um, I'd rather be good at football. I'd rather drive. Um, and she'd rather see. But actually, 
she's come, she's got used to it. She's been blind for the best part of 80 years. I've had my eyesight problems for the best part of 40. And she said, as she was listening to this, she thought, I still would rather see, but at least I now realize my blindness has a point, you know, because it's helped my son and my son helps all these other people. And if I hadn't been blind, he wouldn't have this and they wouldn't have the help he's given them. So I would still choose to be able to see if I could, but the fact is I now see there's a purpose to it. And I mean, I find it quite hard to tell that story. Um, and I think I'm a bit like that. Would I choose to be able to see? Yes. But if I didn't have my experiences, I wouldn't be able to do what I do now. And you can tell from my fire in the belly that it is my life's thing. I love it. Um, you know, I help one bank win the largest deal that they've ever had. I've helped somebody get a job of their dreams. I've helped a politician get um, a really well thought of politician get voted. And that person didn't think they were going to get voted. I've helped people, you know, it's, so it's a, it's a life-changing thing you can do if you can help people communicate better. And I wouldn't swap any of my super weaknesses or superpowers because they've enabled me to help people in the way I can. I love it. Do you know what really strikes me as you speak? I mean, it's so much more than communication because there's energy and there's passion behind that. I mean, mm. you know, you get across what you say without raising your voice or without putting passion. And that, to me, is what is a true superpower because it's kind of going... As you say, you could say it very dry and very factual. Mm. You know, you've you've got the same information per se across, but yet the passion and, and the energy, you can tell your energy level shoots up, which is fantastic. Yeah, cool. Thank you. That might be the coffee as well. It was quite a strong one, but that's very nice feedback. Thank you. No, it is. And, and you know, I think it's it's very well, well deserved. Um, what, I mean, what originally were you going to be when you grew up? Was it going to be a footballer? Well, you know, so that was the aspiration, right? Well, when I was seven, footballer. When I was 17, driver. And that. Um, so, no, I, I mean, when I left university, I remember um, didn't really know what to do. And so I thought, well, I'll just go into a career which will be useful whether I stay in it or not. Um, and so in the end, I just went for, I just plumped accountancy. It was one of those things. It was like accountancy, lawyer, business, whatever. And I just thought, um, and so I busted got to try and be an accountant. If that hadn't worked, I would have busted got to try and be something else. Um, as it, I was very lucky, I, I got a job with Grant Thornton, a brilliant company. I loved every second there. My manager was amazing. My colleagues were amazing. I thought the whole place was amazing. Um, and then when I was there and I was studying for my chartered accountancy exams, um, I used to get a real buzz when I went to the, there's like a training college type thing that you go to when you're studying for professional exams. Well, there was there, I don't know what they have now. Um, and I used to really love going there. I remember the people who were teaching us how to pass the chartered accountancy exams thinking, God, your job looks cool. You know, you've got these really clever bunch of accountants who desperately need to pass because I always thought, like, would I go when I, I wondered when I was younger if I might go into teaching. But I mean, I, I'm very happy to have all my children, but I'm not sure I would want 30 children a day. I'm just not sure that's my thing. And how teachers do it, I mean, absolutely amazing. Um, and it just wasn't my thing. But suddenly I saw, oh, there's a sort of teaching where you're talking more to adults, even though they're young adults and they're clever and they're bright, but they really need to pass. If they pass five grand pay rise, if they fail, they might be out of a job. So it's proper. You know what I and and so what happened was one I was at Grant Thornton, amazing. Uh, I qualified first time, and then I was on a bit of a fast track thing there. And um, but then a job came up at the training college, and uh, I thought, 
do you know, I'd love that. That would be my, my favorite job. So I went down, I was there for about seven years. And that's where I started doing some boring stuff to everybody else, but exciting stuff to me that I don't talk about much. So I started studying adult learning techniques, accelerated learning techniques, psychological behavior aspects of learning, how you can stimulate memory and all this sort of stuff. So I became, um, so I didn't do a PhD in it, but if I had done a PhD, it was, it was quite intense. Um, and I could see how well it was working, Pete, because my pass rates were going up. So national average pass rates at the time were about 55, 60%. And mine were like 95%. So I could really tell I was onto something. So job one, I was a chartered accountant. Job two, I taught chartered accountants. And then job three is the one I do now. So about 20 years ago, I was just beginning to think, what should I do next? And I went to those two presentations by those two banks. And I thought, I know what I should do next. And so I've only actually had three jobs, accountant, accountant teacher, and this. I love it. It's just, it makes so much sense that you, you've, it's, it's obviously it's something, and it's great that you're passion led or you, you've been led by, you know, something that's meant so much to you, you know, which is great. Yeah, well, I feel very fortunate for that, really. Um, and I remember when I was at Grant Thornton, I mean, I've, I'm name dropping them. If you've never heard of Grant Thornton, look them up. Um, if you want an accountant, look at Grant Thornton. I mean, I've no affinity. I have not spoke to him for about 20 years, but I just loved my time there. It was brilliant. Um, but I remember when um, this potential job came up at the training college, I went to my dad and said, uh, Dad, uh, give me some advice. What do you think? And he said, well, when you're at your, he said, what's the best possible job you could do at Grant Thornton? And so I told him. And he said, and now tell me the best possible thing about this new job. And so I told him. And he said, right, if you achieve both those, when you went to bed at night, what would make you most happy? that you get a bus from, almost not able to sleep because it was so exciting. And I said, oh, we're teaching. That would be amazing. And he goes, well, that's the job to consider doing then. Um, so if you, it's not quite as simple as the buzz of someone passing an exam they thought they were going to fail compared to doing a spreadsheet. It's not quite as but – but the more I thought about it, I thought that's, that's real passion that is. And, and it's good advice that to think, like, what would make you feel most complete when you went to bed? Because you might want to start looking over at that. And I found that really useful advice for me. Mm. I'm struck there by the synergy as well of, you know, it's, it's, it's similar to communicating. I mean, it's, that's what an exam is, right? The communicating across your, your skill set from one to the other. Yeah, and communicating at a time of stress. I think that's where the, um, where the concept of afters came up with, I've met before, like you don't want a lawyer, you just don't want to go to jail. Um, because what I found was I could be teaching a group of 40 accountants and they could all think I was cool and we had a good laugh and everyone thought I was amazing. But if two months later they failed their exam, that day had been a total waste of time. Mm -hmm. And so my job was not just to help people understand foreign exchange or whatever it was. My job was to help them understand foreign exchange to such a degree that they could think clearly in the right order when they were stressed two months later if they got it right, they got a five grand pay rise. And if they failed, they lost the job. And so that was where the concepts of all this stuff came up with, because you've got to be able to deliver when it matters. Mm. Um, and I am immensely grateful. So, the, I mean, the company was bought out soon after I left, nothing to do with me leaving, of course, but the company used to be called ATC. And and I have nothing but fond memories of that place because that, that absolute focus on my job is not to teach them foreign exchange. My job is to help them answer a foreign exchange question two months away when they're stressed and when they're nervous. Um, and that's, and in some ways, that's my job. Now, my job isn't to educate people about a sales pitch best practice. It's like to help them deliver properly 
on the day when the customer's going, well. So true, isn't it? And it is hard to not fill a void with noise. Yeah. Yeah. I want to be respectful of your time here, Andy, because I know obviously there's um, you have other appointments. So uh, just a couple of things, really. I mean, for you, you're firing the belly in one or two words. What does that come out as? Um, I think I've, I, in all my answers during the previous hour or so, they're all in there somewhere. The, the, the stuff is you've got to be able to add value. I mean, if you like, I mean, a very simple thing I teach my customers is think of win-win. Everything's got to be a win-win because if it's a win-win, they'll keep buying into you and you'll keep trying hard for them. So if you remember to get win-win, they keep buying, you keep trying. And that probably is a pretty good summary of my life. I want everything to be a win-win. And if everything's a win-win, then I've benefited and so have they and everyone's happy and that's cool. Quite simple in a way, but that's it. It's a great book title too. I think I might do that. Book four, we'll do that. <laughs> Let's get started. Uh, <laughs> uh, Annie, tell us where can people reach out to you? Give us a shout out on your website. Okay, cool. Thank you. So my name is Andy Bounds. So Bounds is in Out of Bounds, B-O-U-N-D-S. So andybounds.com is the website. Uh, I've, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. So And I post stuff most days if people want some free advice. I've got some online videos. That's on Andy Bounds online dot com but anything if you type in andy bounds um it will come up there's a very brilliant journalist called andy bounds who works for the ft so if you type in andy bounds um you'll you'll get like loads of him and a bit of me um, but andybounds.com is the easiest place and then you can email me through the website if you want to cool and give us a shout out on the book as well cool will do 100 percent. listen final message from you there andy no I just uh, i've just really enjoyed it you know i'm, I'm really it's really nice to share my stuff. I hope other people are finding it helpful. And if anybody would like to share anything with me about the communications or the fire in their belly or want to ask me any questions, you know where to find me and you're very welcome. Open offer anytime. Super. Andy, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time and uh, look forward to speaking to you again. Cool. Nice one. Thanks, Pete. Thank you. Well, that was another great episode of Fire in the Belly. You know, this really wouldn't be possible without a great guest taking the time to share their personal journeys. And boy, boy, sometimes it is personal. It's an absolute pleasure to have that and then to hear the journeys that people have been on. We've loads more episodes coming up soon and it's always a pleasure to have guests on. If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons and successes. So all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly and be the mightiest version of you.